Hello, and welcome to the Professional Insight Podcast Season 6. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, my name is Brandon Curry. Uh, where's everybody else that's popped on? There we are. I'm Jeff Collins. Josh Bond. And Trevor Lindy. And we have a huge... We have our huge guest back, uh, big fan of the show. Just don't ask him; he might deny it, but doesn't matter. It's a little <laughs> game that it's a little game that we play. Little game that we play. Um, but one of our favorite guests, uh, Mr. Preet Banerjee, um, finance guru, and uh, also uh, some AI that we're going to touch on today. That uh, one of your recent podcasts. Um, thank you very much for coming on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Um, you're currently in the UK right now. Uh, just, I wanted to touch on, because the last time we, we had you on, which was several months ago, um, you were finishing up your thesis, finishing up your, so but tell our audience, like, where are you with that right now? All done and dusted. So I, uh, submitted it, um, I guess it would have been in January of 2023, earlier this year. I defended in April, and actually my convocation was just a couple of weeks ago. So I'm now out there socializing the research, you know, getting um, to the top of every hill and trying to uh, yell to the masses what the uh, the conclusions were, because I think it's actually quite quite interesting and relevant for your podcast. <clears throat> oh, wait, like, so do, first of all, do we now call you Dr. Banerjee? <laughs> I don't know. That's that's my dad's name, um, and I made it to uh, I made it to forty five without being called a doctor, and I I just don't think it'll stick. Like it just feels too weird. So you can just keep calling me Preet. Okay. okay. <laughs> you sure not even Doctor B? Uh, uh, a humble uh, doctor. Like yeah, it. we got a Doctor J that comes on. He's coming on. October, you know, Doctor Jim Thorne from Do you know he's Dr. been on a couple P? times. Oh, I thought you meant like you know the skyhook, Doctor J, but yeah, <laughs> he's the man. So, what what was your thesis? What what did you defend? Remind everybody. Um... <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. It was on the value of advice, um, which uh, I mean, the technical title was a multi-dimensional analysis into the value of advice to households in Canada. Um, but yeah, I was just really trying to figure out, you know, what is the value of financial advice out there, uh, specifically in a Canadian context. So those, uh, it does apply to other um, jurisdictions as well. And to cut to the chase, uh, essentially, there are a lot of people who feel very strongly one way or the other about uh, financial advisors. So there's a lot of people who think that financial advisors should be shot out of a cannon. And then there are a lot of people um, who know that, hey, listen, there are highly qualified, highly educated people who absolutely add value to people's financial situations. And so how can both be true? And the, the crux of it is that people tend to look at this question in a very binary way. So for example, you know, if you take a look at a lot of the research, industry studies, academic studies, historically, they kind of look at people as either being advised or not. Right? So you either have a financial advisor or you don't. And if you don't, does that mean that you're a do-it-yourself investor? So it's very black and white. There's only two options. And that is not at all reflective of the reality of the market for financial advice. There's so many different types of financial advice out there, whether it's a bank branch financial advisor, independent financial advisor, full-service advisor at a bank, full-service advisor outside of a bank. Some people will say that an accountant is their primary financial advisor, some people only have access to maybe a rep at their employer as part of the DC pension plan. And then you've got more and more people who say that, no, no, social media is my main source of advice. So that's a growing 
uh, selection for a lot of people. So to consider people as either advised or unadvised, and those are the only two options, just isn't reflective of the market for financial advice. So that's one aspect that I tried to address. And then the second aspect was the outcome. What is the measure of success for financial advice? And um, again, historically, a lot of the studies have kind of looked at it in a very portfolio-centric context. They looked at, you know, what's the size of the portfolio? Is it well diversified? What are the risk-adjusted returns? All good questions to ask and answer, but it's not reflective of contemporary financial advice, which is more non-portfolio-centric. And you could argue it's more planning-centric or it's at least more holistic. And so when it came to the outcome measures of how to judge the value of advice, I wanted to look at a portfolio of outcome measures. So there was a portfolio-centric measure, of course, but then there were two non-portfolio-centric measures. One was a measure of the breadth of advice that people are getting. So how holistic is the advice? Am I getting advice on managing debt, having the right life insurance coverage, disability coverage, um, you know, credit management in general? Uh, do I have uh, wills, powers of estate? Am I getting advice on that? So that's a measure of the breadth of advice. And then the last measure was a measure of the um, comprehensive financial confidence uh, that people have. And one of the reasons for that was a lot of the research out there uh, kind of said, if you look at what are called intermediated households, so people who work with a financial advisor, there's a lot of data that that show that they underperform what are called counterfactual portfolios. So what is available in the market, people aren't getting those returns. And if they're using uh, an advisor, there's a lot of data to show that they're underperforming by more than the cost of intermediation. So why would people do that? doesn't make a lot of sense. And so one of the uh, propositions put forward was there must be non-tangible benefits of having an advisor, such as emotional benefits. And so I wanted to capture attempt to capture that as well. So uh, again, if you look at, you know, the conditions of advice versus no advice, that was binary. So I tried to differentiate the market for advice by separating the market into 18 different channels. And then when it comes to the outcomes for measuring, you know, success, what do you do? I use three measures, not just a portfolio centric measure. And that was basically the research sort of design, if you will. And the main takeaway uh, if I can boil it down, I mean, it's 320 pages, so I'm really boiling it down to the real basics here. <laughs> um, the biggest takeaway, I think, was that, you know, accounting for all those factors and accounting for um, what's called the endogeneity uh, factor, like what is it about individuals that determine their success as well? And this speaks to the fact that there are some people who are just naturally good savers, high income earners, highly educated, and they're going to do well no matter what. And they may or may not end up using advisors, but you could argue that you know, 80% of their results are because of them. Um, So there's an endogenous factor as well. So anyways, taking all that, putting that together, um, some of the big takeaways are that statistically speaking, there's no difference um, between not getting advice and using a financial advisor at the mass market level. So there's no difference, except if that advisor is giving a financial plan then there was a robust increase across all three outcome measures. The other takeaway was that people who have a lot of money, um, they do get value with um, you know human financial advisors. And I think this taken together, this kind of squares a lot of the things that maybe you've seen as well, but what I've certainly seen, and that is people who have a lot of money have access to better quality advice. And they also have qualitatively different 
relationships with those advisors because they tend to have higher financial literacy. They're a little bit more discerning, and the financial advisor rises to that level of discourse. So they actually provide different information to people who are highly financially literate and highly financially capable. So the people with a lot of money have access to better advice, and they end up getting value out of that. People who don't have a lot of money, which is the mass market, don't tend to get value out of traditional financial advice channels unless they're getting financial planning. So unless you're being holistic or getting holistic advice, there may not be a a value add for that mass market either. And I thought, again, just two of the findings, but I think those were kind of the big takeaways that really gives me more passion for my mission, which is to get better quality advice to the masses. So you did, I mean, I... uh, so just to put some context to Preetonize relationship, which is purely uh, um, we years ago before uh, Preet, you and I have a mutual connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm a huge fan of your father-in-law's know him quite well socially. Um, but before that, before I knew that I, I, I followed your channel, I watched your channel. I referred um, even my clients to your channel just to kind of, cause you did a podcast uh, this is years ago now, and it was in the midst of me doing my cert, my CFP designation. And it's where you boiled down the different designations. And I think this is probably at the beginning of your research, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, this all now kind of fits. And basically, you know, you kind of d- discerned between like, you know, you look through a, look for a CFP versus a C- CFA versus you, you, I don't know if you recall that, that podcast that you did. Um, but it was definitely refreshing to hear someone that you, you don't have a horse in the game. Like you don't, you did this, you, you, you know, you did this for your PhD. However, you don't have anything to gain from this because you don't, you're not actually a wealth manager yourself. So it was very refreshing to hear um, someone who has an arm's length to the industry besides passion. And you have worked in the industry, but the fact that you can look at it from a, uh, you know, a 30,000 foot view and then to do this research because it's, it's, again, you, you further, your research has come back and has said that, Hey, a financial plan, if you follow it and you deal with a financial planner, the, you're, you're saying, what, what, what would be the percentage? What did you find as the, I guess the, the Delta between, um, Non, uh, non-financial advice or people who just got generic financial advice, let's say at, at, at a bank, right? Versus who also, the, 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 the financial plan aspect. Yeah, so in general, uh, households that received a financial plan versus those who didn't, and that encompasses a lot of people, uh, and I'll speak more to that in a second, but just comparing people who received a financial plan versus those who didn't, there was, and I'm going to speak in approximations here, um, it was associated with 31% more investable assets, controlling for everything else, you know, age, income, uh, channel of advice, etc. And about 50% increase in the breadth of advice, and about a 50% increase in the financial confidence of those households. So they're more confident, they're getting advice on 50% more areas of financial decision making of the household, and they were associated with 30% uh, more investable assets. Now I want to make clear that those are correlations, not causations. So while it adds to the evidence that um, 
you know, good advice is associated with better outcomes. You can't necessarily, you know, say, all right, case closed. Now, this proves that if you simply get a financial plan, you're going to be better off. It's associated with that. And the same factors that might lead someone to, you know, demand a financial plan or be receptive to a financial plan are the same factors that lead to better decisions in general, et cetera. So it's not causal, it's correlational, but it's pretty good correlational evidence that supports the value of good advice as opposed to the value of just advice generally. And earlier when I said, you know, comparing people who had financial plans versus those who didn't, you know, one of the things that I looked at was, yes, there are as many as 18 different channels of advice that I considered, which can be separated into five buckets, and I can talk about that as well. But there's also a difference in the quality of advice received within any channel. So just because you go to a channel where financial planning is available doesn't mean that you'll get it. So one of the questions I did ask survey respondents was, did you receive a financial plan? So it's possible that you you know, could go to any level of the bank, uh, usually the higher levels where you get planning, but still not get a plan. Uh, and so it, it is interesting to note that people that receive financial plans were associated with um, a robust increase in outcomes across portfolio-centric and non-portfolio-centric measures. So basically... Is it, to put into layman's terms, like I guess I, I do a finance, you know, certified financial planner. I do a financial plan for someone, and the reason why you're saying, you know, correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, because you you know you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force them to drink, kind of deal. Like I can I can do the the best financial plan for somebody, and slide it across the table, and they just don't don't even bother following it. Is that is that kind of the deal, or someone comes in and demands it, and then I'm you know that particular financial advisor just kind of whips something together and just gives them a financial plan. Is that kind of, is that why you're, you're kind of basically saying the correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation? Uh, no, not, not that. It's just that the experimental okay. or sort of the research design doesn't allow you to really take into account causation. Um, it only allows you to make correlation. So ideally what you'd want to do is you want to do something like a, a diff and diff study, which is a difference in differences, where you'd want to take a whole bunch of people, randomly assign them into different types of advice, and then see how their scores differ over time, right? So that's the difference in differences. So the difference in scores over time based on the different channel of advice that they're assigned to. And you want to Ideally, you'd randomly assign them into these different channels. But, you know, ethically speaking, it's kind of a difficult thing to do, like, because you'd want to randomly assign people in a whole bunch of different channels. So you couldn't take someone where you knew that, you know, they have low financial literacy, they're maybe very anxious about um, making financial decisions in general. And then you say, well, listen, you've been assigned into the do-it-yourself channel. You've got to do everything yourself and not ask for advice. And we want to see how you do. You can't do that, right? These are real people's lives. You can't sort of assign them into that condition because it would be very detrimental to that particular household's uh, situation. So um, there are other ways to sort of tease out causality. All of them are, you know, uh, involved lots of getting a lot of data and whatnot. Uh, So again, for the purposes of this research, it was just correlational, but, you know, pretty good, I would say, evidence that, you know, open some doors for other research to sort of explore and say, okay, well, there's, there's a little bit more to this. Let's dig a little bit deeper and what have you. So how was the process? How was the process? Uh, did you have to defend uh, your thesis as well? 
Uh, yes, absolutely. It was uh, it was quite a defense, actually. It really earned yeah. that title. And what was interesting, I can only speak to my experiences, but I, I've been told that you know uh, in North America, it's not quite as adversarial. It's okay. more of a, I don't know if I go so far as to say a formality, but most of the people who are doing the examining during the um, the defense are people who have already been socialized to the research. They've been working with you along the way, yep. and you're kind of presenting them with the information and, and talking through it. And there's a formal presentation and what have you. Um, but because my university, the the conferring university is in the is in the UK, so it's part of the UK system. Even though my primary supervisor was in. Um, uh, at the University of uh, Toronto at the Rotman School of Management. Um, it was a UK-based uh, defense. And over there, apparently it is not abnormal for it to be very adversarial. And um, when I got in uh, for the beginning of this three-hour defense, uh, there's no presentation. They just start launching questions at you. And uh, they really took me to task. Like I, I really felt beat up during those three hours. So really? It was, it was oh my God, defense. that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And my so only what point of reference your- is I did, I did a, an honors and they actually have to, had to defend my honors thesis and very much smaller scale. Right. But we, even for an honors four year honors thesis, we had to, you know, give the presentation and the faculty kind of was obviously a little bit more limited in scope came by and it was, it was quite <coughs> nerve wracking, but on a, a, a very minute scale relative to obviously what you had to encounter, right? Like it's, 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 it's stressful, right? I mean, cause that's so much of your hard work, right? And they're yeah. drilling these questions and they're not easy questions at you, right? Like, yeah, no, no. Good on you. That's Good insane. On you, Good. That's awesome. Three hours defending a paper that you spent how many years researching? Uh, six. I mean, it should have taken like three, but it took me six. <laughs> hey, they never take what they, we think they're going to take, right? Mm. <laughs> So another thing that you um, did on your U- on your YouTube channel that we're all pretty fans of um, is the the evolution of AI. Uh, uh, all of us on this That's crazy. All of us crazy. on this podcast is, are our fathers, and uh, it's scared. Well, I mean, I was always I, I was never a subscriber or believer to AI to begin with. I just was always cautiously optimistic. Um, on the impacts of society. And then you release this video. Rookie, do you have the video teed up by any chance uh, for us to show our listeners, viewers? He does. Okay, Rook, can you... Um, we're pretty open here. We just, just like... Producer Rook, he's just amazing. We wouldn't be even exist without him. Um, Rookie, do you mind? Uh, okay, up. you need to check this out. This is not my real voice. This is voice cloning technology I'm using to show you how scammers are impersonating you or your family members in order to scam people out of their hard-earned money. In this video, I'm going to show you one way to help you and your families reduce your risk of falling to a scam powered by AI. And it all revolves around a low-tech solution that comes from the world of spies and espionage. I'll show you exactly how it works. Hey everyone, my name is Preet and this is now the real me. And I'm a consultant to the wealth management industry, and this channel is for anyone who wants to learn more about the world of money around us, including learning more about the people who want to take our money away from us. You may have heard of the grandparent scam before. It's a catch-all phrase, but it's most commonly associated with someone calling an older adult 
and pretending to be a family member, often a grandchild. Because once you have kids or your siblings have kids, you are nothing to your parents. You don't exist anymore. Everything revolves around the grandchildren. They will do anything for them, including donating your organs to them if they need them, even if you're still alive. So of course, grandparents are a prime target for these types of scams. And this scam is actually a very old scam. The scammers used to just say something like, Grandpa, is that you? I'm in trouble. Not using any names. And what's a perfectly natural response from a loving grandparent? Madison, is that you? What's wrong, dear? And from there, a story falls, which could be anything from having gotten into a car accident, getting arrested while vacationing in Mexico or what have you, anything that requires an immediate transfer of cash. And they might say, I'm so embarrassed and I can't get a hold of mom or dad and I only have 30 minutes to pay or else I'm gonna end up in jail or something else really bad's gonna happen. So what does the grandparent do? anything you ask. Wiring money, sending an e-transfer, buying gift cards to transfer, or whatever scammers are doing these days. So that's the basic grandparent scam, but you're probably wondering, won't people recognize their grandchild's voice on the phone? Well, if the scammer is using a plug-in to make it sound like a bad connection or a bad long-distance call with poor quality, and if the grandparent hasn't spoken to the grandchild in a while, it's probably easier than you think. The scam relies on urgency, fear, and the protective instinct of grandparents to help. But in the end, it's a numbers game. Scammers will just keep on dialing and move on until they get a hook. So the success rate is probably super low, but they don't care. They just keep dialing for dollars and it works enough that they keep on doing it. But now the success rates are going to dramatically increase because of AI. And even parents who can detect a lying tone in their kids' voices could be susceptible. For all the buzz we've seen on how ChatGPT can help you script out how to ask for a raise or write code or how Midjourney can imagine Joe Biden jet skiing on the French Riviera, these technologies can also be used to make scamming you much more effective. Voice cloning technology, like what I used at the top of this video, can now be trained to sound like anyone. Crazy. That is unreal. And Insane. before we came on this podcast, you were telling us because at the end of that at the end of that video, you were talking about how eventually video is going to catch up to the voice. Yeah, and what have you, know, you just in discovered? My, yeah, and in my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, you know, deep fake videos people have seen. Uh, examples of that. And, uh, you know, last year would take a long time to uh, get the training data available and process. It would take a while to create these these deepfakes, which are very convincing. And so I thought, well, you know, it's just a matter of time before we start to see video fakes instead of just AI cloned voices, AI cloned videos of people. And I didn't realize just how fast it would happen because just this morning, um, I was playing with some new software that allows you to type in whatever text you want, and it will create a video of you uh, saying that. So in that sample video that you showed, it was just the voice being cloned. Hmm. And it's gotten better since then. I published that, I don't know, maybe a month or two ago. It's gotten even better since then. I mean, this this voice cloning technology inserts 
breaths in between sentences. It changes intonation and the cadence of speaking. Now, it sounds so natural. But now you can create, and literally it took 10 seconds, video. Without standing in front of a camera, it will now create a video of me saying whatever I wanted to say, and my lips will match the words that are being spoken. And it's so incredibly accurate. It is so scary how fast this technology is uh, advancing. How, how do we control it? Like, is, is there any possibility? Because, I mean, the, the only way that we can <clears throat> somehow try and get a, ahead of it, right? Like, just, I mean, like crypto, right? There's got to be some some measure of controls that are brought in before the insanity ensues, right? Like it's, it needs a two-step verification like everything else is nowadays. No, right? but I yeah. mean, that's what you need. I, I heard a song that paired The Weeknd and Drake and, and doing a duet, right? And they've never done a duet, like kind of. Yeah, and it sounds good, right? I think it, it like charted yeah. at one point and, and people are generating sales from, from those songs and commercializing this stuff. And the question is, well, who deserves the profits from that you know who gets the income for that so there's a lot of gray areas uh, with so many different aspects of the applications of ai but as it pertains to fraud you know one of the takeaways of that video that i published on my youtube channel thanks for sharing that um is the use of an ai safe word um and again at the beginning of the video it talked about how this was an old school technique used by spies to basically verify identity because this was created when you know if you're meeting uh, another spy and you've never met before but you know you're directed to you know pick up this file or whatever from this person you needed to be able to verify that this person was indeed <clears throat> who you were expecting to meet and so you'd have a basically a, a challenge phrase you get a challenge phrase and then a response phrase that both of you would memorize ahead of time and those techniques are, on one hand, very sophisticated, but also very basic. Um, and so, as an example, you know, a challenge phrase would be something that isn't going to draw attention, something that wouldn't stand out. So, all those challenge phrases you see in the movies—that's that, not what happens in the real world of world of espionage. Apparently, I don't James know, Bond's not is, real. James Bond's not real. Is that what you're telling me, Frank? No, I'm not saying that. I'm, what I'm okay. saying is, you know, like if you look at the Mission Impossible movies, I think mm. in. Um, which one was it? Mission Impossible Fallout. There's a scene right at the beginning of the movie where Tom Cruise, uh, Ethan Hunt, answers the door, and there's this shadowy figure who's about to hand him one of those self-destructing tapes or whatever. And he says, um, fate whispers to the warrior, and then the response phrase is, uh, a storm is coming. And then the uh, response to that is, um, the warrior whispers back, I am the storm. Very cheesy, right? So if you ever said that in public and you're meeting someone who is not a spy, then you're like, what the hell is wrong with you? Who talks like that? <laughs> it's a dead giveaway that your spy is using these challenge and response phrases. So real world response phrases would be something like you're, you're, you're meeting someone and you would ask them like, um, which direction to the train station? And they would say a specific response like, well, it's 10 blocks this way. Um but, uh, you know, it's close enough that you could walk. And um, your response to that would be, um, yeah, you know, it's a nice day. I think, I'll, I think I will walk. Or you would also have a response that indicates if you think that you've been blown. So you'd say, oh, you know what? I've got a limp, so I'm just going to take a cab. And that would tell the person that, you know, you've been compromised or whatever. 
And so, again, very, very detailed, but at the same time, very low tech. Mm -hmm. And so this is basically a safe word. And this is something that I think families need to develop. And you have to socialize this concept of this new type of fraud with, you know, grandparents, any members of the family and say, listen, this is now something that can happen. And in order to prevent something like this happening to you, grandpa, grandma, um, we are going to develop a family AI safe word or an individual safe word for every member of the family. It's got to be something that you practice um, and something that is going to let you know that, yes, indeed, the person I'm talking to is the only person on the planet who would know this, this answer. So it's something that I think more people should think about. And, you know, there's this saying that... Um, that's oh, a great to, idea, Preet. That's a great yeah, idea, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, anyone who's listening, mm. think about it's it's kind of cheesy, but it's also kind of fun, you know, it fun works. thing for a family to do is to figure out what is your challenge and password for, you know, different members of the family. And you know that anytime there's something suspect, like someone is calling asking for money, that should trigger, okay, well, use that cat that passphrase and, and challenge response. Um, that you've developed with your family. And it could be enough. Um, and I got this idea because there was a story of a, a woman, um, I'm going to say mm, like millennial, so not not super old. So someone who is like tech savvy, I would say, tech savvy enough. And she received a phone call and it sounded like her daughter who was sobbing on the phone and said that she had been kidnapped. And of course the mom, you know, uh, was beside herself, you know, and you hear something like that, any common sense you have goes out the window because now you're in protection mode and you'll do whatever it takes to protect your kid. And so the people on the phone saying, um, yeah, that's your daughter. And if you ever want to hear her or see her again, you're going to have to drop off, you know, a million bucks or whatever. She said, I didn't have a million bucks. <laughs> I think they negotiated down to a couple hundred grand. I forget what it was. But she almost got to the point where she was going to meet them and agree to be picked up in a van and, and hooded in order to, to hand over the money. Because again, if you're put into that high intensity situation, you don't have the luxury of the time to really digest and think, hold on, maybe I should do something else here. So that's how scary these things are. Um, and that's why not only do you have to develop an AI safe word, I think, you have to practice it. And, you know, when you have conversations with your loved ones, get into the habit of periodically using it. Otherwise, you'll, you can forget it because I did this with my wife. We developed a, um, an AI safe word. And the first three or four times, uh, you know, she said, hey, uh, you know, what's, what's the, our AI safe word? I was like, I forgot. So you have to practice it too. Um, but this is something I think more people need to do because this is now a real growing threat and the rate of... Uh, increase in the number of uh, fraud which AI is being used for is exponential. It's like in approaching an asymptote now. It's ridiculous how this is going to affect our society. I think part of the scary part, though, that they're targeting grandparents is that, you know, sometimes they, like my grandfather was targeted before on a driveway scam in, in person and it was when he was having early, early signs of dementia. And mm. so he wasn't thinking quite logically right and he was taken advantage of quite quite easily they actually took him to the bank and made him get out money and they basically just painted black tar on top of the his existing driveway and scammed him bad like it, it's difficult because when they are, are are taking on grandparents you know it's mm -hmm. when they're playing the numbers game they could have some unfortunate signs of of, of that and, and easily take advantage of it right it's tough 
Yeah, I actually, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote a Globe and Mail column talking about the um, the ideal age to make financial decisions. The reason I bring this up is because of the what you talked about, you know, um, senior citizens and cognitive decline. So apparently the age that we make our best financial decisions is 53 on average. And there's a, there's a couple of reasons for this. So there's, if you look at it in the context of the number of financial errors we make, there's a U-shaped pattern in our lives. So we make more financial mistakes when we're younger because we don't know anything about money. No one's ever taught it to us and we learn by <laughs> trial and error. And then as we make more decisions, we learn from our past decisions and the outcomes of those decisions. And we read up a little bit and our financial literacy goes up and our error rates go down. And they reach this valley at age 53 because then our errors start to go up again because of cognitive decline. And so as cognitive decline uh, progresses, our ability to make good choices decreases, our vulnerability to scams increases, new technology um, is only accelerating in terms of how fast it evolves over time. And you know, after a certain point, our ability to adapt to new technology, I think, gets compromised as well. And so seniors end up being a prime target of financial fraud and other types of fraud. Sad, eh? Sad so I, 53, I guess. It's just crazy. Yeah. Six years away from making my best decisions. I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you are you sure you don't have cognitive decline right now, there, Collins? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do on some Sunday mornings. Some Sunday mornings. That's right. Exactly my point. <laughs> temporary, temporary. Had, but fifty-three. I yeah, got lots had parties to at your here. house. Yeah. No financial decisions on um, a Sunday you morning. Yet. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't think That's you. Right. No, no. That that is one hundred percent. You just watch the 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 Super Bowl or 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 any football game, and that's it. <laughs> um, that is the just decisions on home. That, it is just it. scary. It's scary on how terrifying. Fast it's terrifying, not scary. It's terrifying. Well, and the scarier part is where they're at right now. It's going to grow leaps and bounds like crazy. Yeah, even a year Stamp from now, it's just coming. the rate of change, the rate of change and innovation in AI and AI well, like, fraud is. My, is my huge. wife's going back to Taiwan soon, and she she always has my kids about learning other languages and all that. I was born my wife's from taiwan her mother stayed with us and i could not even communicate with her at all and now with my phone i can literally talk in one thing send it to her and it's fully translated right like it's you can almost do that anywhere in the world oh yeah now, right? so you can communicate i mean we're, like we're better already, better with the we're already yeah we're already at the point where you can have live translations done uh, by software. So I could be speaking yeah, in English instantaneously. and yeah. instant translation into, you know, at least 25 languages. And, and by the way, that, um, video faking technology I was talking about where now it can, you can type in anything and it'll generate, you know, my, my lip movements that are in sync with what's being said. It also can instantly generate that into 25 different languages right now. So, the ability for people to commit fraud um, using this new technology is huge. And so, you know, from financial professionals perspective, you can train these um, voice clones on as little as three seconds of data. And so given the extent of social media and people's presence on social media, one clip, one clip on your Instagram profile of you saying something for three seconds is enough for the software to create any voice message you want. And so, 
you know, you have to think about what does this mean for security for <coughs> financial professionals who have clients uh, and they get, you know, a phone call and someone can type really quickly or they plug in ChatGPT and connect it to the voice generation software and it can have a real-time conversation sounding like one of your clients based on three seconds of training data. You could wipe out a client's holdings just with voice authorized uh, transactions over the phone. So um, this is something that more companies need to think about. I know they already are because they're really scared about the prospects of this. But in terms of security and preventing these fraudulent transactions, because for the uninitiated, people who don't know that this technology exists or just how good it is, it's almost indistinguishable from the real thing. That's how good it is. Crazy. Well, it was kind of funny because I called up the my credit card company just the other day just to ask about, you know, points and stuff like that. Nothing crazy. And, you know, while I'm being talked to, they're like, oh, can we use voice authentication to in order to, to verify you? I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. But because I've got a pin and I've got all this type of stuff. And now you're saying, well, throw that out the window, you know, and th- this is one of the things. So my my wife, uh, social worker. Uh, worked for facts and purely because of how garbage this world is from what she's seen um, we had a policy we do not put our children children's pictures videos nothing on social media nothing as a parent quite frankly you're an idiot if you do you are a moron because this is exactly the reason why we didn't even think about AI five years ago. Like that was just more so why am I going to give a criminal a picture of my kid? And like literally we would be getting criticized by other parents by why don't you post pictures of little Johnny? It's just like I don't want anyone knowing where little Johnny goes to school. I don't want them to know anything about little Johnny, to be honest. Wait, you got a now, kid named Johnny? I do. And you <laughs> – we keep them in the closet because we're just oh, like, we don't want anyone to know. Australia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Australia. Don't, yeah. don't tell Kristen. He's don't 22 years old right now. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know what I, but you know what I mean? Like, and now they can take, uh, you, you did a video or someone did a video very, very close to it. And it was basically, they can now take a picture of your child. They can age advance them. They can take their voice, age advance it, and use that. It, it, for five, six, seven years down the road, and then boom, they can use that as a. It, it's so scary how fast this technology. Should is we even be doing this podcast right now? Because I mean, realistically, <laughs> like, you know. Well, if anyone wants to copy my voice, I, I'm sorry, you're picking, you're barking up the wrong tree on there. <laughs> you know? Well, think of the AI ball busting techniques you can do with your buddies soon with all this technology. You know, be be some fun stuff. You can no, really, I mean, well, you can really mess good. with buddies. There's some good things and there's some funny things for sure, right? Like definitely, right? You can't, I'm not poo-pooing AI in its entirety, but it's just, you know, I would wish like there'd be some measure of control over it, right? Like Somebody's that. totally using your poo-poo comment there and making some good video off of that. You can roll with that. <laughs> well, it's a double-edged, I think it is a double-edged sword to your mm-hmm. point. I mean, there's certainly some aspects of AI that are phenomenal in terms of productivity and the ability to enhance our quality of life, reduce certain menial tasks of work. Um, Historically, if you take a look at how disruptive technologies um, have been feared by uh, society over time, you could 
go back hundreds and probably thousands of years, it's the same story. New technology arrives on the scene. There's a lot of people who are apprehensive about it. And it can be used for good and bad. Um, as it relates to, you know, um, professionals um, or people who are higher paid, higher skilled, um, if you go back to the late 1700s, early 1800s, this is kind of a cool story. Um, it was, uh, I guess, in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And at this time, a lot of people were bringing in new forms of technology in terms of like automation. So one particular industry, which was uh, a high-paying industry, required uh, high skill at the time, was people working in textile mills, you know, making clothes and fabrics and stuff. So at the time, in you know, late 1700s, that was a high-paying, um, high-skilled job. And these textile mill owners were starting to bring in um, stocking frames that would help ramp up production and, and speed up uh, things uh, quite a bit. And the workers at the time, they were really apprehensive about it, and they, you know, saw it as a threat to their livelihood, and so they went on strike. And, um, you know, there's in England, in France, same story, same time, all the same things happened. Um, in England, there was a story about a, an apprentice who broke one of these machines. His name was Nicholas Ludd. And he became uh, a symbol of this Luddite movement. This is where we get the term Luddites from, uh, based on this guy who was upset with these stocking frames coming into these textile mills. And in France, same thing. Um, and in fact, in France, you tended to work in the urban centers if you're in these textile mills. And you're highly paid, you wore nice clothes, and you had uh, leather shoes. And these guys all went on strike. And so the textile mill owners, they brought in scab workers from the countryside. And these guys didn't make a lot of money, weren't high skilled, didn't have nice clothes, and they didn't have leather shoes. They wore wooden shoes. And in France, or the French word for these wooden shoes, not moccasin or clogs, it's uh, sabot, S-A-B-O-T, sabot. And so this became a scab, or sorry, a uh, slang term for the scab workers. They'd be like, oh, here come the sabot to take our jobs. And so they did. They took their jobs, at least temporarily, worked in these factories. They were very clumsy, um, not very efficient in what they did. And the striking workers, eventually, they said, you know, we're not getting our point across, you know, by going on strike because the mills are still operating. So they went back to work and they said, to show our uh, displeasure, though, we're going to do, do something else. We're going to work like a sabot. We're going to be slow and clumsy and reduce output. And that's where we get the word, apparently, sabotage from. Mm. So these are oh. all emblematic of, yeah, cool story, right? Yeah, that is um, neat. They are all emblematic of um, this trend, which is every time new technology comes into the workplace, people are apprehensive about it. But since that time, you know, textile mills and factories and fabrics and clothes have exploded in terms of how much there was out there and how those industries have grown. In 1967 uh, is when the first ATM was launched. I, was, I had ATM in my head when you were going through that... Uh yeah, yeah. So an, an automatic bank teller yep. machine, right? It was launched in 1967 by Barclays Bank in a place called Enfield, so just north of London. And at the time, what do you think bank tellers thought? They're like, this is crazy. What are you doing? You're going to take away our livelihood. And they were very apprehensive about it. But this actually, what ended up happening was the bank ABMs were used for menial tasks like processing deposits and withdrawals which freed up the humans inside the bank to do provide higher value-added services. So they became more valuable. And that actually led to an explosion in 
you know, uh, banking's footprint across the country and, and around the world. And there are more bankers um, working than than there were back at that time. Like if you control for population growth, I think the bankers per population has increased faster than the population. So um, again, a- initial apprehension, but led to productivity gains. Now with AI, uh, it's probably going to be a bit of the same where it's not going to be that AI is going to replace people's jobs necessarily, but people are saying it's people who use AI are going to replace people uh, who don't. And so it's just, again, it's this new technology and how do we sort of learn to use it to our advantage, but things are changing so much faster than they ever did before. So the rate of change of these disruptive technologies is concerning. And as it relates to regulation, this is where we have some real concerns. I mean, even the so-called godfathers of AI have basically 100%. written letters to people saying, this is getting out of control. Uh, this is now progressing so fast that we face some existential crises as a civilization because of AI. We need to put a pause on development because it's just accelerating way faster than we can even figure out how to regulate it. And it is going to require some kind of regulation because left unchecked, I guess the fear is that you get to this point of superintelligence where the AI, movie Terminator, Terminator. Yeah, those are the doom scenarios, right? <laughs> so the superintelligence, the superintelligence Ooh. nexus point or whatever it's called is basically saying there's never been a point in time where a more advanced species has not tried to dominate anything below it. And so if these AI uh, programs get to that point, they are so smart and so fast at processing, it would be the blink of an eye before they say, you know, humans are insignificant compared to us. They're inferior, and so we should control them. And so that's, I guess that's the worry, right? But now see- Good good movies. The difficulty (laughs) there is, is, is like- there's a, there's a processing unit and then there's independent, right? Even with an AI, you need somebody manipulating that. Until you get to the point where it thinks for itself. That's, that's like, that's a, that in my head, that's a huge logical leap from where we are today. Now, even as fast as it is evolving, right? Like that's almost creating or inputting a consciousness or some, some measure of consciousness into and I'm not saying that it's impossible because hell, shit, you know what well, I mean? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like having a kid. They grow up, they grow up, you take care of everything. They become a teenager, they think for themselves, and they start talking back. Right? So it's, <laughs> like everything changes real quick, right, when they get to a certain point. So Yeah, and I think, you know, um, so my undergraduate degree was in neuroscience. So I know the basics, like the very basics of how the brain works. Um, and I emphasize basics. This was a long time ago, and I only did my undergrad. But when you think about what a computer does— and how software operates, it's really not that different to a brain. I mean, a brain is a bunch of circuits mm-hmm. and you know you have uh, neurochemical pathways. And how is that really different from you know transistors and logic boards in a computer, except the computer has vastly more processing power. At the same time, the brain is so complex, there's still so much we don't know about it, but at, at its fundamental core, it's just circuitry. And so, you know, but there's we, free will in there too, right? Well, that is something that I think a lot of neuroscientists debate a lot about. Um, you know, there's some people who believe that you know our thoughts are formed based off our experiences, and there's this. God, this was a long time ago, so I'm probably going to butcher it. But 
um, you know, our memories and engrams that we have in our brains are, are based on how reinforced certain circuit structures are in our brain. So the more we think about something, the more that pathway becomes sort of easier to fire. And that's how we build our memories. And if we don't use those pathways and we don't fire them that often, then memories fade. And so all our decisions are based on basically our collective experiences and our, yeah, the experiences that we had. And if you think about it, there's something about that that suggests that there's no free will. So again, I don't want to get into mm-hmm. that debate because I don't, it's been a long time since I've been considering it. There's probably a lot of new research and thinking. I, I've got, it, I've got partial philosophy background too, right? So no, no, we don't want to go, go into Yeah, the it's such will. a deep, deep hole, <laughs> it's right? Crazy. It's crazy. But suffice it to say, there are some people who don't believe in free will. <laughs> so yeah, no, no. Back to binary. Yeah. Almost, right? Yeah. Um, to, I mean, like we, this, yeah, this whole deep. AI thing is, 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 is crazy. I, I just, I mean, we only, I'm very, I want to, I want to be very respectful of, of, of your time and, and I'm so thankful. And I, and again, we would love to have you on again Absolutely. when your schedule allows. Um, uh, if it back, allows, right? right? You're pretty busy. Quick, quick, <laughs> quick, quick, uh, like you back for, you, you bank back for Thanksgiving, you back for us Thanksgiving. What are, what are you doing? Um, um, yeah, I've been back flying town. back and forth a lot. Um, so I'm in London this week. I was in Edmonton the week before. The week before that I was in London. The week before that I was in Denver. Um, I'm flying back to flyer Tor- miles. <laughs> yeah, I am on Monday. I'm heading back to Toronto for a week. Then I come back for I think a week. Then I'm off to Phoenix and Nashville, wow. and then back to London, wow. and then back to Toronto. Like it's just it's funny you know the previous five years i was long distance with with my wife she's um based in the uk that's why i moved here so we could be together and i feel like i'm maybe traveling more now <laughs> than, than i was when we were commuting to to see her but now i'm commuting for work um going the other way but at the end of the day i actually like travel i don't have any horror stories compared to some of the stuff I see out there. Uh, I mean, I never check a bag. What kind of crazy person does that? But um, so far, so good. Knock on wood. Stuff it in the overhead, right? <laughs> always, always. So while we just, I want to, you know, I've got one more topic that I want to talk to you about, but everyone, please, you know, like I, I've had the uh, the privilege of being to a couple conferences where Preet was the keynote speaker. Um, I'm trying hard internally, Preet, to, to get you to speak at one of our conventions at Sun Life because I just think you have a lot to a lot of value to add. I appreciate I, that. I, I I love hearing you speak. So, um, Sun Life, open up your wallets. Let's go. <laughs> um, the uh, final thing I want to so PreetBanerjee.com and obviously his YouTube because he's he, he's such a huge supporter of our channel, and we love to be a huge supporter of his. Um, the final thing, just maybe you, you're right now in the in the in the UK. Uh, I know this is a bigger topic, but you know you speak about you know budgeting. You've spoken about finance. I, I've beaten the drum a whole bunch of times. How are you feeling right now with regards to inflation <laughs> and the interest rates? Everybody's favorite economic. Word. You know, um, we've spoken about the Bank of Canada interest rate increases. We can't figure <laughs> it out, um, and inflation is the invisible tax it affects everybody relatively um i don't know go ahead uh sure yeah 
Yeah, I mean, you know, coming to the UK, uh, there's real learning curve. Even for someone with some experience in the world of personal finance and investing, there's the learning curve coming to a different country, which really opened my eyes as to just how difficult it is uh, to assimilate coming to a new country and all the rules and regulations. Um, inflation has been a lot worse in the UK uh, than in Canada, if you can even fathom that. But we only dropped down from double digits a couple months ago. Um, so inflation has been huge here. And so the building I'm in, it's a rental, it's purpose-built rental. And uh, up until a couple months ago, I've been hearing stories from other tenants that the offered increase was uh, in rent was 15%. Um, year over year. So massive increases in uh, the cost of living here, for sure. And it was bad enough, you know, in Canada and the US. And it, uh, I think what we've seen is that the borrowed time that a lot of households were on in an era of ultra low interest rates, which has a way of covering up sort of bad budgeting issues and um, I would say sort of missteps in household financial decision-making in general, you could sweep those under the rug because of the low interest rates and a falling interest rate environment. That's changed. And not only has it changed, it changed in such a harsh, dramatic way that you know this massive increase in interest rate, the cost of borrowing, people borrowing so much money because they had access to cheap credit. Now we're going to see the other shoe dropping because we've been hearing about how stretched people have been during this run-up in rates. And we have people who, you know, were in locked fixed rate mortgages for a while. They're going to be renewing, paying, you know, $1,000 more per month on average, maybe more. So this is going to be a real strain for a lot of people. And what's going to get? Well, if you were, um, even though it's hard to define the middle class, so you're upper middle class, whatever savings there is one. you have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if you were saving money, you know, you probably had to give up saving money in order to, to stomach the increase in the cost of borrowing stuff. And you're probably, um, you know, uh, tight. But anyone who's sort of in the mass market and on the lower income side of things, I mean, you're already paycheck to paycheck. And now you had to come up with an extra $500,000 a month. Something's got to give. And eventually that translates into lower consumer spending, which translates into slower economic activity. Um, and, you know, it's hard to imagine a scenario where we don't have um, uh, sort of a hard landing. Uh, so it, it's very scary. And then there's the, the sentiment aspect to it. So when people think that things are going to be bad, they adjust their behavior. And that behavior in itself kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where they cut back on their spending, which lowers economic activity and what have you. So it's been challenging. And I have to say, you know, when the governor of the Bank of Canada came out and said, uh, rest assured, interest rates are going to be lower for the foreseeable future, go out and borrow, basically. God, what a credibility hit that that was for, for Absolutely. the Bank of Canada thereafter, right? I Where's mean, the recourse on them? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. And this Truth. is a real- Thousands of people. Millions. Yeah, yeah, that was really bad, really bad, uh, real big misstep to say something like that. And you know, I've I've met Tiff Macklem. He's a super nice guy, super smart guy. Uh, I'm sure he would be the first person to say, "Yeah, I wish I could walk that back." But there's the political aspect of it all too. So it's just awful, unfortunately. 
Well, I mean, you know, like I, I don't like to be uh, a rook if we can stay in because we're wrapping it up. So I'd like to stay on the on, on the five of us because we probably all have something to say here. Just like I'll put my hand up, uh, you know, CFP. I've got a cash flow statement. I, I manage it accordingly. You know, Tiff McCall. I do watch Tiff McCallum. I do watch all these things. I do watch Jerome Powell. Right. And, um, you know, I made purchasing decisions, you know three years ago, two years ago, that I wish I never did because I was being told that interest rates would be low. So you understand, Preet, when I say I'm you make calculations, you make return on investment calculations, you 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 know, you do renovations or you do something based on and then you also have to look at the historical fact and you know we're at the highest interest rates in, in, in Canada in the last 20 years. Interest rates have gone up by 475 basis points in 18 months. That's never happened in the history of the Bank of Canada. It's never happened. Yeah. And you make purchasing decisions from a while ago. And I feel horrible for people who don't have the flexibility to – because. You know, this whole notion of, oh, the rich are fine or whatever. I don't know. But if you would have asked me like 10 years ago, I would have said someone who made 150 grand or more in, in Niagara specifically in, in Ontario <coughs> was doing quite well. And I'm talking to clients that that have great household incomes and they're well, getting killed right, left and center. And the other problem is how do you trust anything the government's telling you at all anymore? Like when, when did you ever, though? Yeah, but but it's eroded yeah. even more now, right? Like it's like yeah. they can say they can't even say we're dropping rates coming up because then people will wait for that. They can't say that they're not going to continue to rise. They just have to, you know, keep you in the dark the whole time, and you have no idea until these rate decisions come up right like that. People are just sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting right now. The market's on pause right now. It's pretty bad. And the one thing that I have to that that Jeff has mentioned on many Jeff and Josh have both mentioned on many podcasts, um, the power of new home builds, especially in the province of Ontario. And if you've bought a new home or built a new home, you understand how much money goes into the economy and how powerful those new home builds are. And Jeff, you know, Josh, Trevor, you know. It, it's everything's at a standstill right now. Well, it's, it's not scary. because, because like I'm a builder myself, Preet, and you probably stroke anywhere from 85 to hundred checks before the build's done. And every single person in that little mini economy is paid. And then the builder gets paid eventually when it closes. And right now the, the, the interest rate of borrowing for builders and developers on the bigger scale is so high that every month that goes by that they're not closing the deal, just eroding your profits, right? So it's it's yeah. tough, and there's a fine line in the sand that's been drawn right now for most builders. They won't reduce any further because they will not be profitable. So it's kind of a standstill. And when it's a resale house and they want to buy something else, they'll drop, 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 and you know eventually sell and they move on. But when there's a profit margin in there, they just they can't do it. So it's it, it feels like the line has been drawn in the sand right now. And it's a waiting game on some of this to happen, at least in Niagara right now. Yeah, and that's my selling. question to you, Pre. What's your opinion in terms of the the tip of the bow there? <laughs> well, uh, I firmly believe that there are. Question. Um, yeah, 
two types of market forecasters, those who don't know and those who don't know that they don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's <laughs> like crystal uh, ball gazing, right? We, we, we yeah, exactly. It's tough to say. Um, it just does feel like, you know, we had uh, chronic housing affordability issues that have become acute. Um, and with the cost of borrowing going up so much, you know, how do you increase that supply? Um, a market response, I don't think, is going to be there because a developer is going to say, well, does this project make sense at these current rates? And it probably doesn't for a lot, right? So a lot of developments have halted. So given the increase on pressures to the household, seeing what we're starting to see in some industries with um, uh, hiring freezes and we're starting to see some cuts now, I do wonder if, you know, we're probably seeing a scenario like the early 90s being more likely where you have sort of a hard landing, um, which would in theory, you know, cause the central bank to lower rates again and and try to stimulate uh, activity and development. So, you know, the idea of a soft landing, I don't know. Um, it would be nice. I just, given all the things that are happening, all the things that we're worried about, it seems hard, but... Again, I have never been a good, uh, never had a good ability at predicting things. Um, it just feels like some kind of hard landing is probably oh, the thing I, that's going to happen. I feel like we've almost started it. Like as far as building, I have random people calling me on a regular basis that are trades asking, do you have any work? Do you need anything? Yeah. You know? And before yeah. they weren't even answering the phone calls because it was so busy. So it's flipped. With that having been in a, said. In a quick time. October first in Ontario, minimum wage is going up to six sixteen fifty five. Oh, goody! Because minimum wage has never exacerbated inflation. That's never happened ever. And it's <sighs> it's not that it's not that I'm picking on people that are out of minimum wage, but man, that's no, that's accelerated insanely over the last decade or so, right? It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to just it wrap is. your mind around things and just. Not look at the government and say, look at you fucked up, right? Well, yep. I feel like hard landing, you're right. It's 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 coming real quick. Be interesting next three months. When, well, when do they drop pre- rates, Pre? When do they drop rates? No, that's what I was asking them. And it's crystal ball gazing, right? Like, yeah, yeah, no What's idea. What's your gut tell you, though? What's your gut tell you? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know. I think there's now some, some thinking uh, across central banks that, you know, a, a higher... Um, sort of interest rate environment is compared to what we had experienced, you know, in the 2000s and, and the knots um, is likely. So the era of super low interest rates, I don't know if we'll ever get back down there again. I think it caused too many issues. Who knows, though? It, it depends on governments of the day, central banking thinking of the day. But I don't know if we'll ever get back down to a prolonged rate of super low rates again. I think that, yeah, I don't know. I can't predict it, man. I have no idea. I, no, I couldn't even explain some of the past decisions that have been made with the benefit of hindsight. Right. It's just too All quick, right. too, you know, too much, too fast. Well, up and down. I'm, I'm just very cognizant of your time. Preet, uh, as always, I, I want to, we, we want to have you on again. Um, yeah, my pleasure, so, guys. Thanks so much for having well, me on. This is amazing. That's um, where that AI goes. It's crazy. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Thank you. Help us, 
help you stay informed. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Preet. Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Hey, 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 hey. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.